Well, here's another way I could begin. Okay. My best friend asked me to help him die. That's Rob, and this is Rumblestrip, Vermont. Rob Merman and Bill Morancy lived in neighboring apartments in Montpelier, Vermont. They were best friends, and as he said, Rob did help Bill die, and this is their story. Welcome. Bill moved into this apartment house in, uh, a week before I did, so we became neighbors. Uh, I would go knock on his door for things, and he would knock on my door. In fact, it, it got to the point where at one point he moved to the apartment below me, so in order to contact him, I would take a broom and bang on my floor, and he would take a broom and bang on his ceiling and reply, and we had this code of, you want to come out and play, that kind of thing. And we would go out and play baseball, we'd play catch, we would play paddle ball, we'd play tennis. We never kept score, and there was no competition. Everyone else we, who wanted to play with us always wanted to keep score, and we said, you can't play with us then. <laughs> this is our ball, and we're taking it away. One day we were, play, we were playing tennis. The rec department had taken down the tennis nets, so there are no nets. At one point, we had a Spalding, one of these pink rubber balls that we had when we were kids, high bouncers, and we were playing with that on the court that had no net, whacking it back and forth, but it went so far, it went over the 30-foot fence. So I went around the fence to get it, and then from that other court, I whacked it as hard as I could to get it over the fence back to him, and he whacked it back to me. So suddenly, we're like these midgets on this huge tennis court, whacking it with all, and laughing and laughing. And uh, walking by were a couple of teachers with their preschoolers. And the preschoolers, you know, little three-year-olds were holding on to this rope, like a parade of ducklings. And they stopped (laughs) outside the courts watching these two elder guys whacking this rubber ball as hard as we could over this 30-foot fence. And finally... One little girl, one little three-year-old came closer and and said in a real loud voice, when I grow up, I want to play that game. (laughs) And Bill laughed and laughed and laughed. Yeah. We were like two 12-year-olds. It's the kind of buddy you would have when you were a child. I've had my physical traumas throughout my life. I was in a car accident 25 years ago and broke my neck and survived that somehow. 12 years ago, I had cancer, survived that. And then it was about two years ago, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's. So one thing after another with me. And meanwhile, Bill was 70 years old in great shape. And Bill doesn't have a car. Bill lives, he lived a very simple lifestyle. He walked to work, uh, which was a few blocks away from the apartment. He lived in a tiny apartment. His meals were very simple. He ate the same things every day. Uh, He totally simplified his life. He didn't have his own doctor. He didn't feel any need for it. So he was figuring 
the long, as long as we're neighbors, he'd be checking in on me, that I was the one who was going to need some help. I'm in my late 60s. And one day he became out of breath and knocked on my floor and asked me to come down and see what's going on. And I said, I'm taking you to the hospital. He said, no, I, I don't go to hospitals. I'll, I'll sleep this off and we'll see what's going on tomorrow. But he was very weak. He could barely walk up the stairs to his apartment. Uh, and I, I, I took him to the hospital and they took some x-rays just to check him out. The doctor came back in. Bill was lying in the hospital bed. I was sitting by him. Doctor looked at me, looked at Bill with a serious face. And Bill suspected something, and he said to the doctor, you can say anything in front of him. You know, he's, he's a good friend. And the doctor said, x-rays show massive pancreatic cancer that spread through the liver. And Bill immediately responded, I know what that means. That's a death sentence. I asked the uh, the doctor, I said, well, what is the prognosis here? And she said, terminal within six months. So Bill said immediately to the doctors, I don't want to die in a hospital. I don't want any tubes. I don't want resuscitation techniques. I want to die on my own terms the way I lived on my own terms at home. And that's when one of the doctors started to explain what Act 39 is all about here in Vermont. In Vermont, it's called the Patient Choice and Control at End of Life Act, shortened to Act 39, which provides eligible Vermont residents with terminal diseases within six months is the, is the rule. The option to be prescribed a dose of medication that when taken, will hasten the end of their life. It's not physician-assisted death. A doctor is not there and won't be. Uh, the doctor prescribes the medication, but it's up to the patient to pick up the medication and self-administer it at home, not in a hospital and not with the help of a doctor. And the law uh, stipulates very specific protocols. First, you have to have many discussions with your doctor about it. The doctor has to sign off on the fact that you're making this decision on your own. Nobody's making it for you. That you're men mentally competent to make this decision. That you're terminally ill. And there's a list of other things. And then there has to be at least a minimum of two weeks before you're, you're able to use the prescription. You have to see a second doctor because maybe in those two weeks your mental capacity has changed or you've changed your mind and uh, Bill uh, he grabbed onto that option right away but there were a lot of questions how does it work what do we do does he have to be alone or can he have somebody with him and when he asked me to be his proxy our relationship slightly shifted and the friendship that we had, two older men, uh, sometimes people misinterpreted that. They thought, are, are they gay? Are they a gay couple? In this culture of ours, there doesn't seem to be a model for two men 
to be good buddies. So in this situation when he was dying, I had to be part friend, part medical consultant. I would drive him to the doctor's appointments, and uh, we were talking about the fact that he had to self-administer the prescription. And he was worried that at the end he wouldn't be able to, either that he would be too diminished or that he would falter at the end. And that's when he looked at me and asked if I would be there with him. And I, my first reaction was, of course. The last two months, Bill was a film buff. And he loved films, independent films especially, and foreign films. But we decided to have a weekly film night in my apartment, and I would ma manage to get Bill out of his apartment slowly over to my place, and we would watch films. And he, d he said, I want to watch musicals. So we put on South Pacific one Friday night, and it was glorious. The music, and of course it's a beautiful film, and the music is fabulous, and just the Technicolor colors, and we all got emotional watching it. It was fabulous. So then the next next time we watched The King and I, and then a week later, West Side Story, and then a week later. So we went through all these musicals, and we would I would glance over at Bill watching these beautiful movies, and when there'd be a sappy, sentimental scene, I would glance over at Bill and he'd, he would have this smile on his face. Well, by the third month, when he was getting so weak, he knew his end was coming. And he would say that to me. He said, Rabbi, I'm fading. I'm losing it. He had reached the point of diminishment and he knew that he was ready to to take the drink. And uh, the first worst day that I had was when we decided I would go pick up this prescription for him. It was hard to find a pharmacist who would agree to fulfill the prescription from the doctor. I had to drive two and a half hours to a pharmacy. But as soon as I got in my car, I realized I'm, I'm, I'm driving to pick up his death. What am I doing? How, what? And when I got to the pharmacy, I couldn't go in. I, I just couldn't go in. And there was a used bookstore right next to the pharmacy. So I went in there. I love used bookstores. And I spent two hours buying a, a stack of books that I didn't need. <laughs> it was totally pro procrastinating. And finally, I went into the pharmacy. And I, I said, I'm here for for Bill's prescription. You know, the doctor had called it in and explained to the pharmacist. And they had this young guy who was very cheery. He said, oh yes, we've been expecting you. And he's smiling and cheery. And I'm thinking, I, I gotta get out of here. I just gotta get this stuff and get out of here. And he starts to explain how to use it. And I said, I, I know, I we've talked to the doctor. I just needed to get out. I finally grabbed the little bag and I got out of there shaking. 
three days ahead of time, he said, Rob, I've chosen the day, next Monday. And I said, why Monday? And he said, well, I checked the weather report. <laughs> what? He said, yeah, because the weather had been fine and the weather was going to be good through Monday, but then the next day there's going to be snow and ice and sleet, and he didn't want to inconvenience people the day after. And uh, he didn't want any more visitors. And I said, do you want me to let your son know that you've chosen the day, or do you want me to let the team know? He said, no, don't let anybody know until after. He didn't want to upset people. He didn't want people to interfere. He didn't want people to... He wanted it to be his, his event, his day. And I felt it was a gift that he let, he let me into be a witness with him. And I tried to convince myself that this was a gift, which it was. I was learning how to, I was learning one way of how to die on your own terms and gracefully. What was your philosophy of life? How do you think about life? Affects how you think about your death, or it should. There's a Dylan Thomas poem, do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. He thought that was bullshit. He said, why rage against the inevitable? I want to be able to go out in a peaceful way. He, he just wanted to make sure he could pull it off and wanted my help with that. The night before the event, I didn't sleep any, and I, when I called him the next morning, I said, you want me to come over now? He said, no, come over around noon. I said, really? If this was his last day of, of life, I, he didn't want me to go over. I, partly I was considering I'm going over anyway, but then I wanted to respect whatever he was going through. Was he meditating? Was he, what was going through my head? I can't ever remember. It was a total jumble. I remember shaking. I remember not being able to do anything except glancing over at the clock every other minute. And finally, when I got there, I said, Bill, you know, last night, what I was thinking was this was, because I'm in show business, and the image I had was of closing night of a Broadway show after a, many years of a long, successful run, and the cast had gotten really close with each other, but it's closing night and you know that you're not going to see each other after this and so there's these nervous jitters of anticipation and fear at the same time that you're not going to see each other afterwards and he said I like that analogy and he said for him last night of sleep was like a dress rehearsal for him so then we began the process now, the process of doing this, you have to empty each capsule 
into a glass. Empty, open up each capsule and pour the powder into a glass. A hundred of these capsules, basically sleeping powder. And once you've poured all the powders into a glass, you fill it with a little bit of water and you drink it. And you have to drink it quickly because it acts quickly within a couple of minutes. But before you do this, an hour before, you have to take two other tablets. One is an anti-anxiety pill, and the second one is a pill that would prevent you from anti-nausea pill, so that when you actually take the drink, you wouldn't throw it up, which would be catastrophic. <laughs> so I'm waiting for Bill's signal that he wants to start all this. But meanwhile, for an hour, we're just chatting, talking about films, talking about politics, talking about... In the back of my mind is, what, what? We're just chatting the way we would do every day. But we've talked for months about philosophy, about dying and death, and we've done it. We're past that now. And I understood that, so I didn't want to interrupt him with any deeper doubts. Finally, he looks at the clock, one o'clock. He said, okay, give me the tablet. And I said, okay, here's the anti-anxiety tablet. He said, I don't need that. Throw that one away. So I gave him the anti-nausea pill, which he took. Then we had an hour. Then the clock is ticking. The hour goes by. It's two o'clock. And so he starts emptying the capsules. And suddenly we realize this is going to take some time. Because you know, it was hard to open up each capsule. So he goes and gets three bowls and sits down on the rug. So I sit down on the rug with him, like two 12-year-olds, going to play marbles or something. And I said, what are those bowls for? He said, well, I'll pour the powder into one of these bowls. And I said, hold on, Bill. So I picked up the three ball, bowls. I brought them back to the shelf. I came with the glass. And then I went back and got a plate, and I put the glass on the plate. And I said, well, you can pour the powder into the glass, and if any spills over, it will spill onto the plate. So he began the process of opening the capsules, and we're sitting on the floor like a couple of kids. And I said, Bill, do you... You gonna lie in bed and you want me to sit on the bed or in a chair next to he said, No, 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 I'm not gonna be in bed. He was really weak. He could barely walk around, but he said, No, 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 I'm gonna sit on the couch over there. And then quietly he said, I would appreciate it if you sat next to me on the couch. I said, Okay. And then he said, almost plaintively, he said, And would you hold my hand? And I said, of course. And uh, I said to him also, I said, well, you're not going to drink alone. I knew that he drank a little bit of whiskey every night just to help him sleep. So I said, well, I'll drink some of your whiskey as you drink your drink. And he said, okay. So I, I poured myself a little shot glass of whiskey. And then it was time. <laughs> I've known, I've known grief. I've lost a sister, I've lost my parents, I've lost other relatives, I've lost other friends. I understand death. And I think grief is something that you get over in time, but sorrow continues. The undercurrent of sorrow, I think, is a fact of life. 
I'm friendly with sorrow. I don't avoid it. I acknowledge its presence in my life. It's not always on, it's not on the surface. It's under the skin, but it, it gives me a metaphorical sense of life. And there's also an aspect of wonder about the mysteries of life that is a counterbalance to the sorrow of life. And uh, there's a lot of wonder to balance the sorrow. Bill had, out of the various jobs that he'd had in his life, he'd been a lot of things. He'd been a corporate lawyer when he was young, then left after a couple of years. He said, I don't want this life. And he became a land surveyor, a radio station operator, a huge variety of things. And one of the things he did, he ran away to the circus for a season, selling concessions in the circus, and he loved it. And he he learned some circus traditions, and one of them is that circus people never say goodbye to each other at the end of a season. They always just wave and say, see you down the road, because they know at some point in your careers you'll, you'll work again in, in some show someday, and that always does happen. And he loved that phrase. Anyway, it's time to take the drink. We're sitting on the couch. We clinked glasses, drank. He puts down the glass. And the last words he says to me, he looks over to me and says, see you down the road, friend. That was Rob Merman. The music for this show was made by Vermont musicians Brian Clark and Mike D'Onofrio, and you heard from the original film soundtracks of South Pacific and Carousel, both by Rodgers and Hammerstein. If you have a comment on this show, I'd love to hear from you. You can make a comment on iTunes or Facebook or at the bottom of this show's page on my website at rumblestripvermont.com. If you like what you're hearing on the show, I encourage you to make a donation. Whatever you can afford, I'll be grateful for. Your donations put gas in my car to get to interviews, and they pay for the lots of hours of editing. I'll send you a bumper sticker, which you can stick anywhere that suits you, and you can find the donate button at the top right corner of my website, rumblestripvermont.com. This is Erica Heilman. Thanks a lot for listening.